a lot of people in business think that the price to pay for a successful business is ignoring, you know, the family and loved ones and relationships. When sometimes the question becomes, how can I have this success in business and look after my family and friends? What can I innovate that allows my success in business to be different from my forefathers? everyone my name is julie masters and welcome to another episode of inside influence in which i delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry a conversation a movement or a nation Now, there are some episodes of this podcast where I feel like I come into the conversation with at least some basic knowledge of the subject or or the journey we're about to embark on. And then there are others where it's probably equally as new territory for me as it might be for you. And in my experience, those ones, the ones where I have the least experience, usually make the best conversations. And they also usually lead to places and nuggets of gold that would be hard for me to reach otherwise mainly because I don't come at the conversation with my biases, with my own knowledge, with my own experiences, and simply I'm just able to sit completely in a beginner's mind. And today is one of those episodes. For a long time, I've I've held a long-running fascination into the mysterious world of archetypes. Now, archetypes is not a topic that's discussed often or even a word that's probably often used, but use of archetypes typically has and continues to form the foundation of pretty much every brand identity, advert, film storyline, reality TV show, and marketing campaign that you have ever encountered. Now, most of the people who work in those worlds can and do talk about this particular subject at length, but outside those walls, you barely ever hear it mentioned. And in fact, if you've ever taken any kind of a form of personality test, which, as we know, form the basis of billions of dollars worth of recruitment and training decisions, you'll basically have been given a giant list of what your archetype is, usually in the context of work, and how to make that archetype work for you. Now, the simplest way to think about archetypes or how I have come to think about archetypes is this. They just describe a pattern of behavior that is either permanent, i.e., I'm a high D for anyone familiar with the Maya Briggs model of personality testing, or they form a part of a very specific phase of a journey, such as the phase of the journey called the call to adventure in Joseph Campbell's classics, Hero's Journey, which if you haven't heard, has been used to design the storylines of pretty much every blockbuster movie of our time. Just think Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. So there has to be a key in here, right? Understanding the world of archetypes would seem to give us some kind of unique vantage point on what makes a story, a human, a political party, a movie, a leadership team so compelling. Basically why some are successful and others fail. And that, my friends, is a very long rationale as to why I sought out my next guest. Pip Mackay is a world-leading coach, mentor, and author on the subject of NLP and breakthrough performance author of two best-selling books, The Eight Principles of Achievement, Love, and Happiness, and Four Tribes, One Earth, both of which reached Amazon number one in the US, Australia, UK, Canada, list goes on. She is also an expert on archetypal coaching, which is predominantly what we dive into as our co- part of our conversation today. 
in this conversation, we cover areas not limited to, but including what exactly an archetype is and how we can use that understanding to build greater insights into where the leaps in our performance might lay and also how to get ourselves unstuck. The four phases of growth, how we move between them, where we often find ourselves at what feels like right back at the beginning, aka thank you 2020. The price of feedback and why powerful vulnerability does not mean standing in front of the firing line alone. The concepts of thresholds and click-through points, usually describing those moments that feel like freefall, but are in fact usually an invitation to something else. And finally, what has to be one of my favorite quotes from my time with Pip, which is this, why at various times we all need to learn how to stop blaming and pay the price. And I've thought a lot about this conversation since it was recorded, strangely enough, more than most. And probably my biggest takeaway and something I'd really love you to listen out for while you're soaking all of this up today is this simple reframe. The next time you're stuck, there are usually only ever two ways out of it. The first is to stop beating your head against that brick wall, you know the one, and get some support. Now that might be a partner, a coach, a friend, or a mentor. Essentially, whatever place it is that won't judge how you got yourself there in the first place. And then the second, consciously surround yourself with a genuine diversity of perspectives on the where to from here. As that age-old Einstein quote goes, we can't solve our problems with the same thinking that we used to create them. Now, both of these strategies sound really simple, but in my own reflections and as, as someone who's been stuck more than my fair share of times, it's rare that we do either. On that note, sit back, sip your latte, stride out, and enjoy the fascinating mind of one of the true sages in this space, the amazing Pip Mackay. Welcome to the podcast, Pip Mackay. Thanks, Julie. It's so it's so lovely to have you to have you here in the various ways that our lives have are connected that we didn't even know that we've just been just been diving into our fair. Um, I'm gonna I want to kick off in a way that I usually usually kick off, and that is to ask you if there's an idea or a concept that you've come across really that's that's captured your attention. And the theory being that people who come across interesting ideas usually are the first to come across interesting ideas. And, and it can be related to your field of expertise or not, but just something that you've thought that's worth diving into. Well, I think it's an oldie but a goodie. And I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I think when things like this happen, it's not always easy to find meaning. And so for me, just the idea that everything happens for a reason and whether that's actually true or not, I don't know. But I do think that it allows us to create meaning. And I think creating meaning is so central to what is important in our lives. If something negative happens, but we can find a reason why or learn something from it, then I think that um, allows us to move forward and to learn from anything. Yeah, that just linked beautifully to another idea that somebody mentioned recently, which was we are we're meaning making machines, and we actually get rewarded mm. with um, with serotonin every time we close a loop in our brains. So we. We have a story, we figure out what it means, and then we close that loop and we can move on. And every time we do that, we get hit with a, a lovely, good feeling chemical. 
And that's why often, you know, we're constantly coming up with, with you know, reasons why or trying to make sense of things because it, it fuels us. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of it, it comes around senses of being in control and being safe. So if we can understand why, then we have a sense that we can either behave differently or we can repeat something that has been useful for us in the future. And if we can understand the cause of something, we can influence the effect. And so I think creating stories allows us to understand the cause or factor of something and helps us see ourselves as a hero on the journey of our lives. And that makes us feel more empowered. And I know sometimes control isn't a good thing, but we all know that there's a certain amount of control we just need to feel that we have in our world. And when the world seems out of control, our capacity to make meaning and control inside of ourselves makes us feel empowered. You know, it's like, what is sanity in an insane world that comes from Catch-22? And I, I really think, you know, the way we can have sanity, no matter what is going on in our environment or in our world, is is to understand why and to make meaning. And that's that's how we become the hero of our own journey. I love that. The hero, telling yourself a story where you are the hero of your own journey, not necessarily the hero of the story, but the hero of your own journey. Just keep moving on this vein, actually. When it comes, when we're talking about making meaning, we're talking about focusing on on meaning and then translating that into action. You've spent twenty years studying archetypes, and I kind of admitted to you before we got on this call that I've come across archetypes. I've seen them used in fantastic ways in businesses, but I don't know an awful lot about them, and I, and I hadn't previously met somebody. That could that could help demystify it for me. So let's just let's start off with the basics for for those of you out there that are in the same position that I was in. What is an archetype, and why are they so powerful when it comes to influencing ourselves, our trajectory, and the trajectory of those around us? Yes, well, it's understandable to be a little confused about what archetypes are because of the way the word has been. Um, differently interpreted over literally thousands of years. But I like to go back to the source of something and the original meaning of the word. So arc means umbrella or best of and type means symbol or example of. So you can, in a really shorthand way, understand an archetype to be the best example of something. So the most ideal form of something. And so when we define it this way, which was the original meaning going right back to the Greeks and Plato, then it really clears up a lot of different understandings of archetypes that have been out there. So Jung, Carol and Mies and many of the understandings of archetypes since then, they've had things like the wounded child as an archetype, but really wounded child can never be an archetype. It's the shadow of the child archetype. And the ideal form of the child archetype would be somebody who is enthusiastic, excited, has a lot of ideas, has a lot of movement forward, is a risk taker. Someone like Richard Branson would be that Peter Pan childlike archetype. And archetypes have been used to describe different traits of you as a person, as a shorthand. So in much of the business world, you've got um, understandings of different personality types from, say, Myers-Briggs or, um, or other different forms of personality typing. And when you say something like, um, you know, an influencer or, um, or something like an introvert or an extrovert, you don't instantly get a picture that has a lot of symbolic richness in it. 
But when you think of an archetype, you can instantly get a picture of that, which has a lot of symbolic meaning that's been there for literally thousands upon thousands of years. And that speaks deeply to your subconscious mind, to your emotions. And that is what affects uh, motivation, leadership and influences when we're truly congruent to who we are and when we know who we are. And archetypes give us um, deep keys to unlock not just our personality, but the nature of our soul. And this speaks very deeply to um, why we were born and what the meaning of our life is and therefore how we can contribute to others. I love the fact that you also said archetypes in the plural. So, you know, for anyone who's kind of pushing back on that star cycle, the star sign um, objection, which is, you know, you cannot, you can't frame me in one single story. My understanding of archetypes is that we are, we are many different archetypes and, and often different archetypes in different situations. Is that correct? Have I interpreted that correctly? Yes. Look, I think that we are. And um, a lot of work I've seen out there in archetypes talks about literally hundreds of them. But in the system that I've created, we bring that down just to eight. Some systems have 12, some systems have hundreds. But I look at simply eight that have a really, really long history. And that's another thing about an archetype is it's universal. It works in all cultures and in all ages. And I look at that people have a combination of four that are their passion and purpose archetypes and their talent. And this is really the combination of these two things allows people to, you know, grow wealth through what their passion and purpose is rather than having a job where they make money and over here is what they love. But finding a way to combine what you love with the way that you make your income, your money, your finances. And when you can do that, then you find that you're excited and happy about the very thing that financially supports you. So that's what we like to look at in our work. And so then we say these eight are umbrellas. And when you consider that arc literally means umbrella as one of its meanings, if you've got hundreds of them, it means that you know our umbrella is too small. But if we have eight, we've got these bigger umbrellas, and then every other archetype sits under that subtype. So if you look at an archetype that we call the ruler, in that archetype, there is the concept of um, the king. There's also the concept of the emperor, the boss, um, the organizer, the the person who likes to feel like they're in control a lot. So that would be an umbrella for a whole heap of subtypes. Um, And this makes it a lot easier to understand and and contemplate. But because the, you know, the umbrellas are so large, we don't feel boxed in by it. We feel enriched by it and have a deeper understanding of ourselves and how we interact with other people and also what our skill base is. So for instance, um, for me, I have four archetypes, minor, what we call the innocent adventurer, the creative nurturer, the magician and the knight. So these are my four archetypes. So for me, I love pioneering new things. That's the innocent adventurer, that childlike archetype. Um, I like to create things. This is the creative nurturer or artistic archetype. But what I create, I like to nurture people. And then I like people to be able to make magical transformations and then be able to get results 
with the night. So this is deeply who I am. Now, anything that sits outside of that, that I need to do, or I need to build skills in, I understand that I'm, I might need some skills from an archetype that's not natural to me, and that that's a good thing that helps my growth, but I'm not going to base my business on something I'm just not, because otherwise I'll be spending all my time doing something that makes me miserable. There's uh, there's something I often often talk about when it comes to becoming more compelling, and that is that you, it's not a question of being something you are not. It's a question of turning up the volume on who you are, and that's exactly what you're talking about. There, it's it's not it's identifying who you are, how you show up in the world, the type of of influence that comes naturally to you, that's innate in you, and then making the conscious choice to turn up the volume on those parts, as opposed to constantly trying, which is diminishing energetically and on offers diminishing returns, trying to show up in the world as something that you perceive to be powerful, but doesn't come innately through you. It's so true. And one of the things I love about the archetypes is that, you know, you get a pictorial representation of that. So it means that, okay, I resonate with that. That is who I am. That um, is what I'm passionate about. And that's what makes me magnetic and compelling to others when I express that. And there's a whole lot of aspects to that that I didn't realize was was there. Um, so now I can explore that. So when I was young, I always knew that I was nurturing and I knew that I was artistic. And as I moved into the work field, the artistic side of me sort of kind of disappeared. And what I was doing was always nurturing other people's dreams. When I really delved into the archetypes and started to understand them at a deeper level, I could see that as creative nurturing, yes, there's a nurturing side of me, but it had become exhausted by supporting other people's dreams and other people's creations instead of me investing in my own dreams and my own creations. And so that really assisted me to go, you know, this aspect of the creative nurture I haven't been looking at for a while. And my, um, you know, my light has been dimming because of that, but I, really need to embrace that aspect of myself. But it's not different from who I am. It's another aspect that I've been neglecting inside of myself. It's very, very powerful. So for those of you who are who are listening, just run through the 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 eight for us. And you can always, you know, check out Pip's work in more depth. Um, but just run through those eight so we can get a sense of who they are. So the first one is the innocent adventure. So you think of a childlike archetype like Richard Branson. The second one is the magician. So these people are transformers, um, if you think of someone like Walt Disney. Then the third one is the oracle. These are a much more mysterious um, archetype. So if you think of somebody like Angelina Jolie or Johnny Depp, um, and then you've got the creative nurturer. So this is um, nurturing as well as creative person, as the title suggests. If you think of someone like Oprah Winfrey, then you've got the ruler, and these people are more of that empire builder type person, um, much more in that masculine. But it doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female, you can have both either masculine or feminine traits. So that would be your Rupert Murdoch type person. Then you've got the sage, which would be somebody like Albert Einstein. Then you have the lovers, which would be somebody like Deborah Lee Finesse and Hugh Jackman um, together. And then you would have the knight. So you might think of somebody like um, like Anthony Robbins as the knight. These are people who like to set goals and take massive action towards the achievement of those goals. 
So they're just very obvious ones to make it really clear. But if you look at some of these people, you can see that um, Oprah Winfrey also pioneered a whole new way of delivering uh, interviews. So she's also a pioneer, but this main archetype that we all see her as, as this sort of universal mother, is really clear there. So we've got those. We've got those eight. I just want to talk about it now. Just, just kind of bring it to another level when it comes to growth, because part of your work that I loved is is the four using archetypes to move us through four phases of growth. Um, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you talk to that because it was one of those moments where I had so many ahas, where I was like, "Oh my goodness, I'm stuck. I'm stuck there. I can see that I'm totally stuck there." So walk us through how the archetypes fit into these four phases of growth? Well, this this work came as I was wanting to simplify the hero's journey by jo- Joseph Campbell. And um, there's four stages in the hero's journey of what the hero goes through. And really the hero's journey is all about how an ordinary person becomes an extraordinary person and particularly an extraordinary person of influence. So that's the journey. And I wanted to look at what do I need to mature in my personality in order to move through the hero's journey more quickly and more easily so that I spent less time in tests and trials and more time in the phase where we get to influence other people, get what we want and then influence other people. And really the hero's journey inside the hero's journey, it says very clearly that you will not be an area of influence on something you have not solved within your own life. You're also unlikely to be an area of influence if you have never had a a wounding in the area you're wanting to help other people with. So I think in the olden days, there was this idea of the expert who'd never experienced anything that the patient had experienced, you know, in terms of the old model of a doctor. But nowadays, when we we think of coaching or um, we think of um, people who are in personal development and examples of personal development, we're really looking, oh, here's someone, they had a wounding in a particular area of their life, and they went through all the work it took to heal the past and change their present and enhance their future. Um, and they had to dig deep inside of themselves to do that. And now they've kind of, uh, then they've achieved what they wanted to. And now they're able to earn the right to assist other people. So I had that in my own life because I'd had a childhood where I'd experienced abuse and I needed to overcome that um, and the woundings I experienced there in order to be able to help other people on that same journey. And because I've been through it myself, people who came to me, people who heard me speak, felt like, wow, if she can get through that, I can get through what I'm going through. And that's one of the beautiful examples of what the hero's journey allows us to do and what an understanding of the principle of influence is. Because a lot of people are attempting to influence other people to do something that they haven't been able to do themselves. And people don't tend to listen to someone who's doing that. That's called, you know, our parents or whatever. So, um, you know, parents can be hugely influential if kids see that the parent has a life that they want to have, then they become hugely influential. But if a kid sees the parent, you know, is, is still stuck in the past and does not have the life that they would like, that the child would like, well, then, of course, they're not going to be of any influence on the person. 
So in the archetypal stages of growth, we start at the first stage of growth, which is childhood. So this is where consciously or unconsciously, we we have an innocent naivety about it. When we have problems, we'd really like somebody else to solve that problem for us. And when we begin any journey of growth, that's kind of what we would like. We would just love somebody to wave a magic wand <laughs> and take us out of the pain or the experience we're in into where we want to be, you know. So say you've had a lot of negative personal relationships and perhaps your parents divorced and you've got a pattern that you're repeating from that. Um, you know, we would just love it if someone could wave a magic wand and suddenly we don't have that problem anymore. Or say you've had a health issue and there's been a lot of unhealthy weight that is piled on. We'd just love someone to wave a magic wand and it'll be gone and now we're healthy and happy. But really for sustainable change, we have to go through a process. In adolescence, we start to realize no one's going to rescue us. Um, Sure, people might have some good advice. We might be able to learn some great things and it's great to have support. But in the end, we have to do it for ourselves. And when we go through that, we go through all the teenage angsty um, experiences that we have. Part of us is angry that we have to go through that experience and go through that pain. Part of us doesn't want anyone to help us. We want to just do it all ourselves and be completely independent. And this is sort of warring inside of us. And it's very angsty, just like it is for any teenager. Um, Then if we go through that and solve that for ourselves and make the change within, Then we come to this beautiful phase, which I call the young adult phase, and that's where we get what we really most want. So whether that's a relationship, a really successful business, um, you know, our kids listen to us now, whatever it is that would be our ultimate holy grail or boon, the ultimate experience that we want to have. So we've achieved it for ourselves now in the young adult phase. And then we move into the mature adult phase where people are willing to listen to our advice because they can see that we've made that change in our own world. So these are the main four stages of growth and obviously they're archetypal because they follow the stages of growth that we all go through physically. And now it's about how psychologically every time we start a new project, we'll have this ideal idealized version of what it's going to be like and then we'll have the reality sinking in and and the changes that we have to go through then you know we'll experience a breakthrough and it'll be incredible and then we assist others on that journey there's so much in there that I wanted to unpack um just going right back to something that you said I just want to shine a light on something that you said there which was the wounding And I think that that's really worth um, underlining because the most powerfully compelling, interesting people on the planet and that I know, they are all people who failed. I mean, that's all people who failed. If you look at the people that we follow, if we look at the people that we want to be around, they're people who have walked this path before. The people who have failed either once or multiple times and can bring the wisdom of that too. And the irony is that the very things that make us influential, the very things that make us that archetype of of authority are often the very things that we try to hide, often the very things that we don't want to share. And so I, I just wanted to I just wanted to highlight that for a second because I was talking to a group just this morning about epic storytelling and they were asking what are some of the keys to epic storytelling and one of them that I was talking about is this idea that epic storytelling is personal. 
And that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, that it's bearing your soul to the world. But what that means is, do I believe you? Have you walked this road before or have you held the hand of somebody else who have walked this road, who has walked this road? And if you have, tell me about it. And those are the people that we that we tend to gravitate towards. So I just wanted to I wanted to kind of go into that for a second. But also when we're when we're talking about these archetypes of childhood, adolescence, young adult, mature adult, and how many times we go through them on, on how many different days and how many different projects, I just want to zone in on adolescence for the second for a second, because that's a place where we can often get stuck, which is the, you know, the push I rebel. And I feel like a victim all at the same time. We can get really, <laughs> I don't want to do it, but I want you to help me. Why do I have to do it at all? This sucks. So how do we, let's talk about getting stuck. Let's talk about getting stuck. When you when you get stuck in a particular quadrant or in a particular archetype, how do you move through? Well, I think it's very interesting because in our modern Western world um, and a lot of early 1980s type personal development, it was all about you have to push harder. And unfortunately, that is not <laughs> how you heal. You can't heal by pushing harder. You can only heal by delving deeper into vulnerability, which is exactly what you were talking about there before. Because heroes are really the people who face the fears that other people don't want to face. You know, if you can do something that other people are afraid to do, they consider that to be a powerful um, way of demonstrating leadership. And the biggest thing that most people don't want to do, particularly when they are leaders, is to show vulnerability. But it can't be victim vulnerability. Um, and there's a really big difference. So victim vulnerability is about telling a story to gain other people's sympathy or to manipulate other people into helping you. So victim vulnerability is saying, I'm demanding your attention to feed the part of me that needs love and significance. But when we look at hero vulnerability, um, we're looking at a vulnerability that says, this is what I've experienced um, and I'm sharing this with you because I know that you will have your own vulnerabilities and I want to let you know that we can move through this together. Pushing harder will just drive us to repeat old patterns of the behaviour stronger and more often. We have to actually stop. We have to delve into what is creating this problem, what created this problem in the first place. How do I heal those old patterns? And then how do I connect with others so I can have generative ideas that help me move forward? And this is so different from our Western individualized concepts of what success is. And yet when we study successful people, there isn't a single one that did it completely on their own and I talk about this with coaches because I train people to be executive coaches and life coaches and we talk about how when somebody is frustrated and in angst this is not the time when they need someone to push them harder because they've already pushed themselves as hard as they can possibly go pushing harder at this point creates burnout and it also takes away all the type of generative creative thinking that allows you to get solutions. What, you, what people need at that point is someone who, who can listen actively, empathize, and be able to go, do you know what? Yeah, that is shit for a moment. 
and just sit there with, yeah, that's, that's not easy. That, that was a crappy thing. Yeah. That person betrayed you. That's, that's shit. So (laughs) someone who could just hold the emotional space, it doesn't mean that you're going to stay there, but we all need someone to acknowledge the pain we've been in and that it isn't easy. Um, as a first stepping point, whereas most people are trying to push and fix the person because they can't handle the other person's emotional pain because they haven't healed their own emotional pain. So they just can't handle it. Um, But when we do this, there's a whole part of um, the brain and the emotional centers in the body that relax. And adrenaline stops pumping. You're not in a fight now with the person who's trying to solve the problem for you, you know, which is what teenagers are like. You know, you give them a perfectly good solution (laughs) and they're telling you all the reasons why it won't work. Well, we all do that at this point in time. So we just, when you've got nothing to fight against, it's like, oh, just relax. My goodness, I'm not alone. There is someone in this world who understands my pain. And that's really what makes us a leader. If you can handle holding the emotional space when somebody else is in emotional pain, that is one of the greatest strengths of leadership anyone can ever have. But we're not talking about helping someone just wallow there, holding that space and then allowing the person to naturally, organically want to move to the next level of their growth. One of one of the most successful business people that I know and I've watched his journey from kind of from literally kind of his early 20s to, to where he is now and having created incredible success. And one of the most fascinating things that I saw him do probably about five, five years ago, maybe a little bit longer, he had gone through those phases, as you said, you know, the childhood and then adolescence. And, and he was really reaching a point with his leadership journey where he was asking himself the question, like, in order to go to the next phase, I need to do exactly what you said. I need to be able to stop hustling for a second and just stop and hold space for myself, but also for my team. And he did this, he did this exercise and it took such an incredible amount of vulnerability to do it. He got all of his team in a room and, you know, he had been a difficult period of time. He'd been hustling and he got them all in a room and he sat on the stage and he got an, an amazing facilitator and he said, okay, just tell me tell me about my leadership. Tell me how it impacts you. Tell me where I could do better. I just want to, I just want to hold space for you. I'm not going to say anything. I just want to hold space. And he sat there for, I don't know how long. And literally at some point, you know, tears running down his face and said nothing and just received. And that was the moment when I saw his leadership go from, you know, from, from woe to stratospheric and the respect and his ability to be able to take that team to the next level was amazing. And it all started there, moving away from the hustle. That's right. Because in the end, the hustle is driven by fear and we need to sort of let that fear catch up with us. I mean, you can just imagine, um, Often a lot of people get into business um, because they want to prove something to someone. So it's actually an unworthiness, a feeling deep inside that the person feels like, if I could just get successful, then I would be worthy and I could prove to whoever, my dad, my mom, my teacher, my sibling, my whatever, that I'm good enough. Um, and so this is why him being able to hold that space for what is basically criticism, but not just criticism for any random person out there, but from people who really know him, um, 
to be able to hold the space for that and to open oneself up and to really welcome that and truly be emotionally present even to tears I mean that is really extraordinary that that's amazing yeah, just for a, a note for anybody who wants to try that, don't do it without a great facilitator. Exactly. Don't just don't just put yourself in the firing line. Please, please don't do that. Just get a fantastic facilitator who can hold your back as well as holding the backs of everybody else in that room. Oh, it's so true because this is one of the things I think people are misunderstanding about vulnerability. You know, vulnerability doesn't mean just putting yourself in front of a galloping herd of oxen you know Um, you've got to be discerning and and discerning you know the the secret to how we make great decisions discernment is about self-love so we need to create an environment that is going to be loving for us as well as loving for the other person because some people and we just need to understand there's a certain reality to some people's human nature And that is that they want to just rip somebody else down or blame somebody else for the problems they're experiencing themselves. Um, Jealousy is one of the biggest reasons people like to rip somebody else down. So you do definitely, as you're saying, need a good facilitator to make sure that somebody else isn't using that as a way of fulfilling their own agenda (laughs) or, you know, their own revenge. (laughs) And as you said, you know, vulnerability isn't standing in front of a, of a devouring hurt. You know, vulnerability is as Brene Brown is doing the most, you know, excellent job putting out into the world right now, you know, vulnerability requires boundaries. Vulnerability requires a container. Otherwise it's not vulnerability anymore. And now it's just, you know, throwing yourself under, under a bus. That's right. Self-flagellation. <laughs> yeah, ma- you know, making sure that you have the right container, which again takes slowing down. It takes backing off from the hustle a second, slowing down, listening, receiving feedback, opening up, and then suddenly you can transcend to the next place. But without that, you're just constantly running on adrenaline, which as you've said quite rightly, and many of us have experienced, that's a, a one-way road to burnout, my friend. Let's let's just flip the flip the script on it for a second because we've talked about moving ourselves through um, we've we've talked about our own archetypes. What about influencing other people? How do we use knowledge of archetypes and knowledge of those four quadrants of growth, childhood, adolescence, young adult, mature adult? How do we use those to help other people move through move through their hero's journey? Yes. Well, I mean, I think the key thing is that someone at one stage of growth isn't going to be motivated by the same thing as somebody at another stage of growth. So one of the things that people who have had a lot of experience in a particular area of business do is that when someone's starting um, their business journey or their idea journey or um, beginning a project, um, that person wants uh, the new person to avoid all the pain that they experience on their journey. So they'll often tell them about all the terrible things <laughs> that are going to happen. You see this women sharing these stubborn stories with other women in childbirth and you, you understand the, the reason. There's this idea of preparation, trying to prepare the person. But the whole point of the childhood phase of the journey is to not know so much uh, that you don't take action. I've done a double negative there. But, you know, you need to have that enthusiasm. You need to have the angel sphere to tread just to get started. 
And often people who are mentors need to allow that beautiful enthusiasm and excitement um, and naivety to be there because that's what helps that person take the first step into the unknown. Uh, so you, it's really important that that's there. Once they're in the next phase and they're going through all this angsty stuff, this might be a point where one shares some stories of when you've experienced something similar to that and how you've moved through it or holding the emotional space. This is a better place for, for that. Um, you need to be very careful about giving advice that the other person then rejects um, and then ending up in a battle with that person. You you really need to be allowing the person to ask their own questions, allowing the person's space to figure something out with you as a sounding board there. And then you're never on the other side of their angst. You're on the same side with them, helping them move through that. When someone's at the young adult phase of the journey, it's really important that people are allowed to enjoy that and don't feel like they suddenly need to immediately get onto the next project. There really needs to be a celebration phase in that journey. And then in the mature adult journey, it really becomes about how that person can have an audience to share what it is they have. And one of the things I love about the archetypal stages of growth is that your life doesn't have to be perfect in all areas in order for you to assist somebody else. You just need to have moved through that particular journey. So when I first started, um, I had moved through healing the emotional pain of the abuse that I'd experienced, but I was still repeating relationship patterns that were negative. So that wasn't an area I specialized in. I didn't, you know, set myself up as a, a relationship coach, even though sometimes people came to me and their relationship sorted as they cleared some of the emotional pain out. I didn't set that up. And they also say, right, you don't need to, to be, to stand up and contribute. You don't need to know the entire path. You don't need to have the entire path mapped out. And quite, in fact, quite frankly, this year, if you have, then, you know, you're, you're an oracle and good on you because most of us don't, you know, this is uncharted territory. All you need to know, you just need to have mapped out a couple of steps further than where your target market is at. Just so you can navigate, navigate. you just got to stay a couple of steps ahead and I was just thinking while you were talking there about how this relates really closely to client journeys. You know, we when we when we take a client on a new journey, for example, you're a real estate agent and you you know you've got got a, a new client. You know, at first you're really just they're in childhood phase, right? You're just you're just really trying to educate them on the process. They're very naively optimistic. They're going to double the the record price of their neighbourhood. And then you move very quickly into adolescence where, you know, suddenly it's not as easy as we thought. We're not getting as many offers as we thought. Maybe we should do the opposite of what our mentor tells us to do. And then eventually, you know, if you can move, if you can handle that well, then you can move them through into that young adult phase where the results are starting to come in. It's coming together. And then again, into the kind of the mature adult phase where they're willing to share. So you know, taking people through this journey and recognizing where people are at. And you've said before that when people are in that adolescence phase, you know, a lot of the language that they use is, you know, is around, I have to, I have to, we had to do this. You told me to do this. It's, you know, it's very much that speaking to a parent almost language. And so is there any tips and tools there? I'm putting you on the spot to just move somebody out of that kind of, um, 
rivalry language, me against you? Well, yes. I mean, there's some very specific tools and a lot of it's all about permissive language. So, you know, words like have to, must, should, absolutely, all of those sort of black and white authoritarian words, they won't work in that situation. And we've got an entire labor force that has moved now out of all of this. In cultural change, when we look at Cameron's work, um, they're, you know, they're people based in Australia, really cutting edge on cultural change. Um, they talk about this thing called compliant dependence. And that is where um, leadership used to be about the leader setting down a whole heap of rules. And then the, um, you know, it wasn't even the team, it was the staff either obeyed those rules and were rewarded or disobeyed those rules and were punished. And interestingly enough, down in the adolescent phase, in the childhood phase, it was just about everyone being obedient. And then when it came to the adolescent phase, you just had a whole heap of people being disobedient. Well, now we've got um, people who come into a workplace and they're never being compliant, dependent ever in their whole lives, you know, that it's almost like children younger and younger are getting born into adolescent because even as young children now, there's none of that be seen and um, not heard and all of that sort of stuff. So so kids are uh, being teenager earlier and earlier and earlier. And so it becomes really important now in leadership to understand that the moment we do have to, must, should, um, you will be punished if anything that sits with that type of language will immediately set up um, a pushback, a rebellion. So the type of language that we want to be using instead is things like um, it's really important to, can you, what can we do together here, um, opening the problem solving up to engage both parties rather than one person solving all the problems and then having the accolades of presenting those solutions to someone else and expecting them just to follow it. So it, it's got to be, it, you know, it's now more uh, important that it's collaborative. You've just you've just brought me beautifully. I, I've got a notepad in front of me and I've written something and underlined it. And it's something that you had said in, in one of the videos that I watched before us meeting, and that was the tests and trials are the investment. You know, the, the tests and trials are not the distraction. And again, I just want to say that really clearly because this is a, a hole that I can fall into. The tests and trials are not the distraction. The tests and trials are not the things that pull you off course. They are not the things that are getting in the way of your of your eventual success. The tests and trials are the investment. They are the equity that you are investing into the eventual result. And I just love that as as a reframe. Yes, exactly. I mean, the tests and trials show the way. If you're not got any tests and trials there, it's either not a particularly significant thing that you're attempting to do or, you know, you're not on the way. Because, you see, the thing is that when you want to grow, you're going to come up against the boundary condition of your last growth. So it's going to be uncomfortable because you are literally pushing into the unknown. So there will always be tests and trials. But it's, you know, I love the word, the original meaning of the word problem, which comes from the Greek and it, it um, originally referenced mathematical problems, one plus one equals two. And it meant to throw forth a question for which you know there is an answer. 
And the word question has embodied in it the word quest. So when we come up with a problem, we go, hey, this is a question for which there is an answer. I've just got to discover the answer. And the question itself, the problem itself is part of my quest and answering it is part of the journey. Um, And that's how I become truly innovative. Otherwise, I'm just going to repeat the same way everybody else has done this journey. I won't be innovating or creating something truly new or different. You you also said another thing that I have written in my notepad here, stop blaming and pay the price. And that, re- <laughs> I love, I just love how blunt that is. Um, that, <laughs> that reminded me of a, of an interview that I read with Mark Zuckerberg, where he said one of the most pivotal leadership lessons he ever learned is that everything has a price. So stop trying to find the thing that doesn't have a price. Everything has a price. Choose the price you're willing to pay. And it is, and on and on so many levels, you know, the assumption that, you know, pick the game you want to win, but be very careful of the games you might lose in winning that game. You know, it's there are things you're willing to pay and there are things you're not willing to pay and choose your choose your game accordingly. It's also true sometimes the price we others have paid is not the price we have to pay. And I think that's a really important distinction as well because a lot of people in business think that the price to pay for a successful business is ignoring, you know, the family and loved ones and relationships when sometimes the question becomes how can I have this success in business and look after my family and friends? What can I innovate that allows my success in business to be different from my forefathers. Um, and I think that's also a really interesting question when we're looking at prices to pay because, you know, there's so many ways to do an investment in anything. If we're looking at a real and, you know, an actual investment like an in investment property, you know, you can invest in a negatively geared property, but you could also invest in a positively geared property instead. So you could get, you know, um, an investment, but you can be paying a totally different price for a totally different purpose. So, yeah, it's it's a good time for me to to be to be talking to you because I was literally having this conversation with a colleague yesterday, and we were talking about different games to play. And I was talking about a particular game in my life, and I was saying, you know, I could try to win that game, but anybody I've ever seen win that game has lost a more important game, and that is the game of family. And I don't know how. I don't know if I want to even compete there because that's not a price that I'm willing to pay. And so I had had, had that conversation yesterday and, and walked away feeling, you know, quite righteous in my in my decision. And now you've just thrown a whole a whole curve, a good curveball, but a, but a whole curveball in there as to, okay, it might still be the game, but but now you get to change the rules. How can you change those rules? Yes, you do. And I think this is what's so incredible over the last number of generations as, you know, it's just such an interesting period of time because we've we've had a whole centuries of time where, you know, business and that type of success has been what men have been doing. I mean, the fact is there's been a heap of successful women. It's just that we don't tend to know about them as much. Um, but what's really interesting is as we get a, a huge number of women coming into business, and now the greatest small 
number of small businesses are owned by women. It, like the statistics are huge. There's far more small businesses owned by women than men. So what this means is that we, you know, it's human nature to look to the past. How did somebody else do it? What can I learn from that? But it's so important to go, yeah, and I'm a totally different person um, and I want to do it completely differently. So how can I have some of that that has been great, but I want to have this at the same time. And how is that possible? And it's just like that whole adolescent phase of the journey. It's not going to be possible by pushing harder, <laughs> you know, and that's the mistake that so many women have made um, when they've wanted to have their family and spend time, good quality time with their family or young children and do a business, there's still a programming of the old mindset of, well, I just have to push harder. And then, you know, they hurt themselves by burning themselves out and even more quickly because they've got these other responsibilities and their body has gone through the birth process, which is such a huge, uh, such a huge thing for someone to do with their body. <laughs> it's like such a big deal. <laughs> It's really this place, and it's one of the things we were talking about before we even started this conversation about, you know, uh, how, you know, you were talking about your women's group and women in your area coming together and spending some time together. And how can we do more of that that allows us to free up time um, in other areas? So, yes, there's still a need for focus. There is. That's just a really important thing. But how can I? engaged community which is what women once upon a time were so good at and we've, we've we've lost and often the first thing to go in our busy lives is our friendships and yet it's that very connection that very community that very friendship that might free up time that we can focus uh, on business when we engage in that way which is totally different totally new also I want to just speak to speak to the the fathers because obviously you know there's there's two parents and that dynamic. And I've covered co-parenting in this podcast before, which, you know, a, a couple of people really frowned at, you know, what's co-parenting got to do with influence? However, you know, how we come together societally at this point in time and raise the next generation of human beings is one of the most influential moves, one of the most influential decisions, one of the most conscious creations that we will ever, ever make. And there's no rules right now. We're trying to do it very differently. And I think that to pay homage to the men out there trying to do it, there is far more conversation about what it takes to live a big, influential life, whatever that looks like for you as a, a mother, than there is about how to do it as a father. And, you know, there's far more groups offering support to women who are doing it together than there are groups who are offering support to men who are trying to mainly do it alone, as in, you know, not talk, not talk to their friends about it, not create any conversation about it. So I just want to point that out that that's a, that's a communal conversation. And I would love, I would love to see more support, um, dialogue and robust debate on that topic on behalf of the men that I love in the world that I that I know and, and the men out there who I know are doing incredible work that I don't know. And there's a few people doing it really well, but but not enough at the yeah. moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so true. I mean, my husband was a single parent. His wife left and he looked after the kids after she left. Um, so it, it is such a huge, and it always has been, you know, one of the things we, we don't remember is that mixed families 
um, you know, might not have been that common in the 50s, but historically, because people die from disease and, and war and all kinds of other things, the idea of a mixed family and, and a single father, you know, was actually really common. So it's not a new phenomenon that men would be bringing up children, that women would be out working. You know, it's not actually that new. It's just that we don't have any current that many current references for it. But I think this is really true. And this is where one of the things I love about the archetypes is this idea that we can still have um, concepts of um, yin and yang, masculinity, femininity, receptivity and projection without saying one this man or this woman has to be masculine or feminine or has to have a masculine or a feminine um, role and what masculine and feminine roles really are out in the world and what they were archetypally too. Um, I think, like you said, we're making it up ourselves now. I'm going to close up now. I just wanted to ask um, one of my final questions, and that was I feel like last year we, we all did a bit of a, let's just call it a collective regression. So whether you were a, a mature adult or a young adult, whatever form of mastery you felt like you had reached, I feel like last year we all went back to childhood and then very quickly moved into adolescence where we're just like, what happened? And I'm not happy about it. And can we go back? And so... I was really curious because it's rare, right? It's rare that, that the entire planet goes on a journey together and it's not a journey that we would wish on anybody, but it's it's rare that we all collectively experience something together. What was the major, I mean, you're a coach to some of the best. What was the major piece of advice you found yourself giving out last year? And what's the, the major piece of advice you found yourself giving as we've come into this year? Well, you know, I think in a way it wasn't really about advice. It was just really about listening and understanding what people are going through and giving them permission to feel whatever feelings they had and giving myself permission as well. It's a little shorthand that I've created to to help us all and and my you know my clients and course participants to have a real shorthand with emotions because you know, a lot, any kind of little weakness that previously our busy, 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 achieving, achieving, achieving life stopped us seeing. When we stop and are still, particularly when we're stopping still because, and we're not in control of having to be, um, all the kind of cracks of things that aren't healed bubble up to the surface because we've now got a little bit of space to hear it. But a lot of people then feel overwhelmed by all these things. Or they might have felt like, oh, I thought I dealt with it. And now I'm feeling afraid or anxious. Oh, my goodness. I've actually got plenty of savings, but I'm feeling anxious about money. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I can't be with the people I love overseas. Um, you know, particularly for those people who passed away, that sense of, of loss, of grief, yes, and also not being able to be present with the people we love when they make that massive transition. I mean, this then brings up a lot of things of how often did I contact them before? Oh, I feel guilt and shame about about emotions, about all of these things. So I think for a lot of people um, it's what I call law, which is just listening to the emotion that I'm feeling and just naming it. So it just becomes like, oh, okay, I'm afraid. 
I'd like to just call it stress or I'm busy <laughs> or I had a sleepless night last night, but actually I'm feeling afraid. Okay, so there's the first one is just listening to the emotion and naming it. And then A for um, acceptance. I just accept that I feel afraid. Okay, just accepting that, just breathing that in, not having to do anything with it. And then why? Why do I feel this way? Okay, looking at the reasons and saying, oh, that's actually bringing out something from childhood. Or no, actually, you know, that person I'm living with is not, you know, is not being respectful about anything to do with safety, you know. Um, so I need to have a conversation here. So really seeing is the why rational to what's going on or is the why about something coming back? And then finally the wisdom, what what can I take with me? What what can I learn? And I think this is a beautiful thing to do with other people too. Just first of all, listening, helping them label and name what it is they're feeling because that does calm the nervous system down and sitting with them and accepting with them that they feel that way and then helping you know starting to work out why why do I feel this way and is it to do with the present or is it to do with the past and then you know what can I learn that's going to give me resources to move on so so this is you know really I feel like the role that I was playing with myself with my family with my husband and um, also with clients and, and course participants. Well, thank you, Pip. That was that was a roller coaster ride through archetypes, through the hero's journey, through got all my notes here, through growth quadrants. I mean, a lot we covered a lot, and the breadth of your work is is astounding. So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Julie. I just want to honor you and all the work that you're doing and and bringing all these different people's wisdom as well as your own out into the world it's just so fantastic and and so needed so i'm really grateful to have been on here today it's been really fun and inspiring i've enjoyed it so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.